All right, Scott, we did it. Another another season in the books. Another in. Yep. Opus 150. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the season three finale of Triloquy. You know, huge thanks to each and every one of you that continue to uh, help us grow this thing and and uh, have impact in the way we want. You know, all of the sponsors, more than I could thank, uh, that have supported Triloquy uh, over this season. Thank you so much for your continued institutional support. And of course, Scott, I have to give it up to you. It's not a lot of uh, it's not a lot of people who can be here week in and week out and have some of the conversations that we have. You're trying to say I don't have much of a life? I'm trying to say <laughs> that you have more emotional fortitude and and all of those things because we've had, you know, in the in the final movement today, in, in the uh, final triloquy movement of season three, you're going to reprise uh, some, some difficult conversation that we've had this season that uh, I guess stuck out with you. But, you know, I, I, I just want to, you know, tip my hat to you. You're, you're doing way more work than a lot of people are. So, you know, I never take for granted your role here on the Triloquy podcast. I appreciate very much. I appreciate that. And I also want everybody to know that Garrett steps out further than I do more often than I do. He's far more on the front lines and taken a lot more hits and has not, I'm going to use the word. He has not acquiesced. (laughs) He has not um, backed down at all indefatigable is a good word to describe Garrett over these last three years. So congratulations to you. And and quick thing, you said that um, podcasts have certain numbers that are hurdles to get over. Yeah. Like six, number, uh, podcast number six right. was one. Yeah, episode six. Yeah. And then 100 is one. Okay. So what does 150 mean? <laughs> I guess 150 means we're 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 still here you know as as the the little girl on the uh on the popular meme once said yeah i'm a bad bitch you can't kill me period period where did you find that (laughs) i'm gonna have to add that to the soundboard for next season but that's how i feel after everything that i have gone through after everything that you have gone through all the emails all the meetings that i'm sure you haven't told me about (laughs) at your job based (laughs) on something that you've said here on triloquy you know what is what is a somebody in the comment section or or anything like that gonna do you know after everything that we have gone through and you know this leads us beautifully into a, a little mini conversation I wanted to get us started with. I'm going to offer some forgiveness in the final movement today, some soft words, but there's always an other side of mm-hmm. those feelings. And when we talk about music and the way that we use music to affirm and to build ourselves up, maybe even uh, to get us into those feelings of vindication, are there genres of music or styles or maybe even uh, a particular tune that you go to to amp yourself up to say, you know what? I was right. You know what? I- I'm I'm the one who's doing X, Y, and Z. I'm the, you know, do, you, mm. <laughs> do you have that tune? You're going to laugh. <laughs> You're going to laugh, and it comes to mind so easily. Are you going to go my way, Lenny Kravitz? Oh, the Lenny Kravitz? Yep. Can you can you play this uh, this little lick on one of your guitars? Close. I can play it about half speed. Oh, yeah? Oh, but it's so good. It's so good. Why is this that song for you? Listen to some of these lyrics. I have come to save the day and I won't leave until I'm done. Now, I'm not, 
I'm not saying I'm chosen. <laughs> So when you're feeling like you just need some juice, when you mm-hmm. need some affirmation, you go to the Liddy Kravitz. Though I'm not paid, I play this game and I won't stop until I'm done. Mm. And, and, you know, in addition to being not only an incredible musician and an incredible black musician who has brought folks like me to a genre that I wouldn't be otherwise. You know, he was the only rock star, as it were, right. that I was listening to coming up because mm-hmm. I listened to black music and my family listened to black music and we we counted that in there yeah um, and cindy back blackman playing drums uh yeah. what track does that for you um well I, I i but before we left lenny kravitz i just wanted to also acknowledge that he's been i for many years i i know <laughs> i knew we were going there <laughs> how, he has not how aged does, yeah how does one do it because we talk about celebrities who are aging well and you know and i'm not gonna you know call out any names but there's some actors i'm thinking about now that i feel like are more attractive now sure. than they were 20 years ago you know the older you get but you know he'd been Right. Anyway, shout out to Lenny. You have to eat right and work out to be able to wear a scarf that big. (laughs) (laughs) I might have to make that the image for for this for this final opus. Well, for me, and I I can't remember whether or not I shared this tune on Triloquy, but almost every day for a a year and a half, I've been incorporating a tune by Drake into my daily playlist called Money in the Grave. Basically, you know, it's a tune where he's talking about, listen, I'm doing all of this stuff out here. Um, I am, you know, changing the world and y'all want to act a certain way. All right, Mm -hmm. well, fine. Bury my money with me. Where the fuck should I really even start? I got hoes that I'm keeping in the dark I got my niggas cross the street living large Thinking back to the fact that they dead Thought my raps wasn't facts till they sat with the bars I got two phones You know, when he says thought my raps wasn't facts Until I sat with the bars You know, I, I think about myself in that oftentimes Because I'm like, look I said that I'm going to do these things. I said I wanted freedom. I I affirmed that I am someone who can have an impact on the ecosystem. Scott, as as I'm sure you can imagine, there were a lot of doubts of that along the way from people, you know, wanting me to, you know, oh, well, Garrett, it's time for you to just maybe get back to the bassoon. And and everyone has great intentions. I'm, I'm not trying to diminish that. Mm-hmm. But what I am saying is that there's something to really believing in oneself, even if you feel like no one else is believing in you. And even if it's a challenge for you to even believe in yourself sometimes. But there's one other part of this track that I just wanted to make sure I shared before the end of season three. Um <laughs> <laughs> let, let, listen to what Drake says here. With no money, I didn't gave you. I was on top when that shit meant a lot. Still on top, like I'm scared of the drop. Still on top, and these niggas wanna swap. Niggas wanna swap like a sauce in a watts. I don't wanna change cause I'm good where I'm at. Mom ties, so I'm always good where I'm at. Word the Junior, Jazzy, Baby J. Tell him when I die, put my money in a crack. Couple figures kill Drake said. I was on top when that shit meant a lot, still on top, like I'm scared of the drop. Mm. I feel that for myself sometimes. You know, when we first met back in uh, 2018, one of the first conversations that we were having with someone else you had over to your house, I can't remember who it was, but you were trying to explain to them that as nationally syndicated 
uh, public radio broadcasters, we were at the top of our field. Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to get a better paying job or, or, or a more a job with more uh, exposure and, and listeners. You know, so in that moment, I really felt like I was at the top of my game, getting knocked off of that platform and being able to maintain what I have been able to maintain and to build with you what we've built here on Triloquy. I feel exactly the way Drake felt in that moment. I was on top when that shit meant a lot. Still on top. You know, mm. <laughs> that that bit of that bit of music, you know, um, while serving, you know, my feelings of vindication and yeah, I'm here and, and fuck all the haters and all of that. That's one thing. But, you know, healing is also important and letting go of some of the feelings uh, that may force us to stay in, in those mind circles that can inhibit us from uh, future growth. So to that, I wanted to offer a final season three downbeat uh, to Viola Davis. She did an interview a couple weeks ago that uh, really had an impact on me. And uh, I just want to share a quick clip here. We're going to jump in where Viola Davis is responding to the question of forgiveness for oneself as opposed to other people. I think she describes uh, for uh, not forgiving as being trapped or being imprisoned. Let's take a quick listen here. I, 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 I do believe it's a sort of prison. And not to get too philosophical, of course. but I believe that when you get to the end of your life, you're not thinking about all the people that you hated and all the people that did you wrong. I don't think that you're thinking about that when you're taking your last breath. I just don't. I think all of that goes away, and I think everything comes into sharp focus, which is probably making amends, probably being with the people that you love, probably sewing everything up, probably holding someone's hands. But I don't think that we're thinking about all of that. Mm. I think that, once again, the only person you could save is yourself. That's the only thing that you could do. You can't keep backtracking as what wrong someone did to you or whatever. You got to figure out how to heal that so that, you know, it's what I think I, I, you know what? I, I posted it on my page. It's like you don't you haven't met all the people who are going to love you That's in right. your life yet. And so when you meet. All these people who are going to love you, they do not want to meet a vengeful person. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because they're going to get the overflow I'm forcing of myself to not get choked up, at I'm least right here you. in the opening. I'm telling you. <laughs> we can, I'm, we can, I'm, we can I'm looking at the ceiling we like, We can cry mm. at the end. But, <laughs> you know, you haven't met all the folks who are going to love you. Mm. That's, that's powerful. Mm. And it's even more powerful to think about the fact that these folks who, who are going to love you who you have not met yet, they don't want all that bullshit. That or all that baggage, and it's certainly not your carrying. best self. Exactly, exactly. How do you deal with letting go of of some of that baggage? People um, who have wronged you in the past. What has your healing process looked like? If that's something that you've had to deal with in in that way, we've talked about this before. I have a long fuse, but once it gets there, mm-hmm. the explosion is smiting. Right. right. <laughs> um, my problem over the years was I used to hold a grudge in a terrible way, deep grudge, like U-S-O-B. Yeah. Um, I forget who it was that said it, but it makes sense. It, it's holding on to a grudge is like holding a piece of hot iron. Yeah. It only hurts you. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, there's there's been loads of people that uh, I wish that I would have ditched the grudge earlier than I did, simply because of how great it felt to not be holding on to that hot Amen. iron. Amen. After I let go of it. Mm-hmm. Amen. You know. So for for some people like me, it's 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 a time process, and and my work is <laughs> shortening the amount of time. Yeah, yeah. You know, for folks who for some reason may not know the name Viola Davis, she has the resume of all of the top actors, men and women in the field. You know, she's up there with, as far as I'm concerned, with Meryl Streep and all of the pe- these people that we think about at the very top. Of course, she has not been given the flower. You know, she's getting more flowers now, but even so, I don't think she's been given the flowers that she deserves considering the broad range mm-hmm. of roles that she's taken on and the messages that uh, she has spread uh, being the physical embodiment of black women and dark-skinned black women who, you know, have to face so many no's in their life, especially if you're uh, in acting, you know, or, or, the, sure. or any of the arts like she is. She could hang on to those things, but she's moving forward. And that's how we have from Viola Davis the incredible content, the uh, incredible art that we have. I see that for myself. You know, I have a lot going on in my life and letting go of certain grudges and just opening the doors and being free to uh, uh, live my life and to continue forward without holding on to certain bits of baggage. That's a process that I have really had to go through, especially uh, during this third season. But it's the only way forward, as far as I'm concerned. Moving forward um, by letting go of those grudges is how we all do it. Certainly how I'm doing it here on Triloquy. Let's go ahead and get started. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is season three closer, Opus 150 of this Triloquy podcast. Thank you everyone again for returning week after week. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase and the idea of classical music and recontextualizes it as something that has more proximity to folks' sensibilities today, musical tastes, and the conversations that we can have around it. To listen to past opuses, to learn more about the Triloquy podcast, and to contribute to Triloquy, visit triloquy.org T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U Y.org. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts. I'm going to shout out the Shuttleworth Foundation, who played a big role in Triloquy's growth and development uh, in the early part of season three. You know, the reason, Scott, that we have these mics and this studio and, and everything that we're able to uh, to do uh, sound quality wise is thanks to the uh, Shuttleworth Foundation of South Africa. So another mm. huge thank you to uh, your support all the way over there from the motherland. I want to give a shout out to Opera America. I'll be speaking on their uh, racial justice panel on May 19th. So if you're uh, in the Minnesota area or if you want to uh, check it out virtually, um, I'll have a link to that in the, in the description. And I also want to send a huge thank you to uh, the Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center. I'll be uh, presenting a Let's Go There presentation on Carmen. Scott, we're going to, I have some special panelists lined up and we're going to talk about sex and sex work and 
uh, sexual power dynamics and all of those things as it relates to the opera of Carmen. So we're really mm. we're really trying to go there. The Kennedy Center put out a, a really cool promo uh, that that featured me. So you know, huge thanks to uh, Ashy and Jennifer and everyone over at Washington National Opera for your continued support of Triloquy and the work that Scott and I are doing here. Let's go ahead and get into Scott this final movement one of season three. Do you have last day of school jitters at all? Uh, sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> maybe, maybe I feel a little bit of that now, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, wrap us up here. Nice Keep it and together. Cleanly. Keep it together. Let's, uh, let's get started with, uh, a really quick flat. So since the last time we recorded, there has been a lot of talk, um, concerning Roe v. Wade. I'm going to have a defend Roe, uh, petition in the description of this, but, you know, Scott, not to spend too much time here, I feel like men cannot be silent on this issue. I think it might be sometimes a thin line between men knowing our place in this conversation and not uh, making decisions or, or doing anything that has to do with a woman's body and her autonomy. At the same time, I feel like we can't just stand on the sidelines and let something like this happen, mm -hmm. you know, because there are, because once Roe v. Wade gets out of here, you know, when are they going to go and revisit things like uh, Brown versus the Board of Education or Plessy versus Ferguson? Mm -hmm. You know, all, that one, one thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. So when it comes to Roe v. Wade, I feel like men, we all have to figure out how we can stand in solidarity and show our support while, you know, I, and I, I hesitate because I don't want to say letting women lead because that's not something for us to let anyone do, but mm -hmm. just making sure that we're doing everything we can in our lives to empower women and to stand in solidarity when it comes to this issue. I want to say that these opinions are mine and I do not represent anybody other than myself in these opinions. I want to shout out our Vice President Kamala Harris, who in one of the confirmation hearings asked, can you think of any law or legislation that impacts a man's body. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was Kavanaugh who said, no, I cannot think of that. Okay. So right there is your answer. Right. All right. It's, it, it can't be something that is meant for somebody else and not uh, able to be applied to you. Mm -hmm. um, th and I support a woman's right to choose simply because right now, uh, the decision on a pregnancy that I might make now is very different than the one I may, might make when I was in my early 20s. Sure, sure. I probably would not choose to terminate a pregnancy at this age. Yeah. And if it's not my baby, I don't really think it's much of my business. Right, right. <laughs> so what I do is I support women in their choice, whatever that may be. And uh, I, haven't had to, I haven't had to do that. So, you know, you once said, I mean, you, you often say that because of this uh, universe that we're in, but because of the divergent uh, timeline <laughs> that we right. have figured out, you know, nothing, nothing really surprises you these days. Well, I'm sure you would be quite surprised if you came over here one Monday and I said, Scott, I'm going to be a father. <laughs> You're pregnant? <laughs> Say that's the only way that you can make sense of it. But what, so, <laughs> what I'm saying, so 
what I'm saying through, you know, I guess making that little joke is that this is something that I could allow to be very peripheral to my life because I feel like when it comes to um, straight men, the implications of child support and those sorts of things can be cited as reasons for men to actually care about this issue and to determine how it does actually impact more uh, than just women. Those conversations are there. But, you know, even with my never, I mean, I don't know. I, you, they say never say never. I don't want to jinx something. I don't see myself anyway. All <laughs> I'm saying, make- all I'm saying is this is something that I could just completely put on the back burner. Oh, this has nothing to do with me. I'm going to remain silent. I'm going to let women, you know, have their say and, you know, it's none of my business. You know, I, I, I could take that approach or I could take an approach where I try to figure out everything that I can do to stand in solidarity and to show my support and do what I can to make sure that Roe v. Wade isn't something that's taken away. I affirm a woman's right to choose. I uh, affirm everyone's right to choose. And we all have a role in making sure that that is upheld. When we talk about legalization of cannabis we always say people are going to smoke. Right. It's the legality issue. You right. know, people are going to get it. Mm-hmm. I think you can apply that here. Yeah. People yeah. are going to have them. They're just not. They're and, and it's to, a safety issue as well. Yeah. And to create essentially a vigilante system, mm, mm, I, mm. boy, there's so many mistakes that could be made. And pe- oh, what a slippery slope. And let me let me put this out here. Somebody said this to me years ago, and it has stuck with me, because if you start telling people, if you tell women you have to have that baby, how far away are we from them saying, you can't have that baby? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like the no more than two, was it, in China? Right, right. And that's, so, I don't think that's a rule anymore, but no, that it's was not, in our lifetime. It, it was in our lifetime. That happened. So... Uh, we we have to think about that possibility as and we, well, and we have to think about the violence that comes as a uh, as a result of those things. So you know, you bring up that uh, China rule. Um, I've I've I know there are people my age who are the one or two children of parents that they were allowed to have. So mm-hmm. again, this didn't happen just eons or a generation ago. What I was put on, shout out to uh, Wendy, uh, one of my homegirls, um, uh, a Chinese woman who I worked with out in Los Angeles when I was living out there. She told me that there was a, a problem of people abandoning or letting girl babies die right. because they knew they could only have two and they would rather have boys. So, you know, there, there, there are implications that go far beyond these, these, these rules, these, these things that we're talking about. And I think the same applies to here, uh, to, to Roe v. Wade. I don't think that we really have the perspective on what all of the impacts of Roe v. Wade going away could be. Um, so, you know, religion and politics and all of that stuff aside, I believe in in uh, the human nature. I believe in in human beings and human beings' right to live happy, autonomous lives. And within that belief for me is the right for a woman to choose. So I just wanted to make sure that we said something about it here, um, you know, considering that it's been in uh, in conversation this past week. Nothing but. Yeah. And there's actually a piece of music uh, that I would like to uh, share to transition us uh, to our next accidental. So there's a, a chamber group out there uh, called My Brightest Diamond. They sort of blend chamber music and uh, Western pop aesthetics and that uh, sort of thing. And uh, in this track called This Is My Hand, uh, the description says... 
uh, chamber pop powerhouse Shara Nova sings with Brightest Diamond, uh, an anthem of self-love and bodily autonomy because hand, heart, mind, and voice, our bodies are our choice. This is my hand as performed by my Brightest Diamond. Just a little bit of it here. This is my hand. This is my wrist. This is my arm. This is my fist. Like a twisted vine wraps around entwining. This is my face. This is my mouth. This is my eye. This is my brow. Like lilac wine pouring out to thee. For thee. This is my shape. What do you think about the sound of that one? I, I, I like those guitars. Yeah, that the, hooked me band. right away. Yeah, that, that's really nice. Uh, this is my hand, my brightest diamond. I'll have uh, that in the description if you want to listen to the whole thing. But, you know, once again, before we leave this, I believe in a woman's right to choose. And any man, especially all those men up there at the Supreme Court, ought to be a fucking shame to themselves. Let me not get into my, my anger right now. But uh, earlier today... Clarence Thompson uh, put out a statement uh, saying something along the lines that the public isn't going to bully the Supreme Court into a decision that they want to see. And this is why we have to talk more about representation, because that mm -mm, right there, you know, he may be black, but he's making it hard out here for a lot of people and especially a lot of women sitting on the side of this conversation that I can only assume that he sits on as a longstanding conservative member of the Supreme Court. Anyway. Shout out to all of the women and shout out to all of the men who are thinking about a way to impact this conversation in a positive way and to stand in solidarity. All right. Well, Scott, life gets really busy. I was supposed to go to Chicago uh, about a week and a half or maybe two weeks ago to go see Adrian Dunn and the Rise Orchestra perform Emancipation. Um, I, I, I sent him a nice note. We've got on the phone um, uh, and I'll, I'll get down there to Chicago the next time I can. But you wanted to you know, bring in a little article about it. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting that I would bring in this article. I'm guessing from, this is a sharp. It is. Uh, T2 Online. And it builds on a conversation that we had during the last opus where uh, uh, there was an article out, can classical music be more inclusive? Right. Jesse Montgomery thinks so. Right. Well, here is an example of that idea in action. Uh, T2Online.com is the address where I found Adrian Dunn, Emancipation, Classical Black Music Matters. And this uh, details that performance with the Rise Orchestra, which was founded just back in 2019. Mm -hmm. And um, listen to this quote. The program was absolutely filled to the brim with a varied collection of music, from spirituals to hip-hop, classical to gospel. The net cast purposefully wide, but with the unifying message of unapologetically centered on black folks. Mm -hmm. Also sharing with the audience that we were all a part of history tonight as the concert was being filmed and recorded for an upcoming live album. So we've got a, a musical bookmark in this moment. This could be a watershed. This proves Jesse Montgomery's thesis, theory. Let me, idea. Let me tell you something about Adrian. Tell <laughs> See, me something. A lot of people want to stop the conversation at representation on stage or stop the conversation at uh, the music that's platformed on stage. Adrian 
is just so all-encompassing. Not only does he pay attention to uh, the musicians, and he has fought, and I, I won't say any names, you know, to you know, put his business out there, get him in trouble or nothing, but Adrian has fought for Black women to be on certain stages when uh, he collaborates with orchestras that are not the Rise Orchestra. From In his opinion and from his perspective, to really celebrate Black music, you have to have Black musicians who know the spirit and the culture of this music, you know, from birth, from all of their lives. Those folks have to be on stage. And he has fought, you know, for those folks to be on stage, despite what union rules say and all of that stuff. So he's out here on that level. And then, you know, even even bigger than that, if you go to a Rise Orchestra concert, an Adrian Dunn-led concert, it's not just orchestra and conductor on stage and everyone in the audience stays quiet. He's talking to the audience throughout the performance, between every piece. It reminds me a lot of a like a showcase or maybe even sometimes a church service. So, right. you know, Adrian is out here not just shifting the aesthetic, but shifting the culture surrounding what it means to go to one of these shows. I can't wait to get back to a, um, a Rise Orchestra show. He featured me uh, I, some months ago. I can't remember when it was, but uh, I, I played the world premiere of a solo bassoon work with the Rise Orchestra. And um, I'm just so grateful for, for everything that he's doing. Uh, there are folks out here, we say it all the time, there are folks doing the work in different ways and you know moving mountains in their own corners or whatever. Adrian Dunn is most certainly one of those people doing that. So I'm just so happy happy for him and glad to um, have him as a friend and a two-time member of the Trilogy sure. family. He's been a guest twice, so shout think, out to Adrian. Think about this program, the first half, an exploration of faith through music, and in the second half, he says, it's time to turn up. Mm -hmm. Have you been dreaming about anything lately? Go get it. For a classical concert, the second half pushed all the envelopes and buttons and it ended up, like you said, being a, a tribute to black women, Billie Holiday and Nina Simone, to name a few. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Adrian Dunn and everyone over there uh, at the Rise Orchestra. I'll have information on them uh, it can in the happen. description of this. It can happen. We can do it. And people are doing it. So mm -hmm. it's not that it can happen. People are transforming the space. We just need to make sure that ensembles like Rise and creators like Adrian are being offered the resources and the opportunity to spread this culture beyond just these little corners, but as a, a part of the norm right. of the, the right. industry. Yeah, like, you know, we we have the conversation about specialty shows all mm -hmm. the time. Yes, Adrian's music will be great for a specialty show. It's also great to have that at the center of what we are doing when we talk about classical music. There's a piece um, that um, he uh, and the and the group recorded called Peach Lemonade that I've actually included in some of my programming. The folks down in uh, St. Louis, when I was subbing down there, they heard this track. So it's very groovy, it's very much a vibe, and it's very much classical music. So let's take a listen to a bit of it here. Peach Lemonade as performed by Adrian Dunn and the Rise Orchestra. Something else about Mr. Adrian Dunn. 
his after parties, like when you like when you go to the after parties of 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 a Rise Orchestra show, they're legendary. It turns up. It it definitely turns up. Last time I was down there, uh, we're, we're partying, drinking, having a good time, and then all of a sudden the lights get turned down and um, the entertainment <laughs> arrives. So, oh, that's right. So there's a there, there's a woman who came in and you know did her job, and the whole time I'm I'm thinking, okay, I hope this woman is safe. Who brought her here? You know, of course she's safe in this space, but you know, so I'm all because I look, I'm not I'm not looking at her breast. Okay, <laughs> but I am thinking about whether or not this is someone who, anyway, you know, and in and uh, circling back to bodily autonomy and um, um, supporting a, a woman's choice and all of those things, mm-hmm. I definitely get into that mindset, even though that that's not what is uh, titillating me, if I may <laughs> use that word. Uh, so you know, I'm so I, I get into those vibes. You know, when I'm when I'm like, all right, let's make sure this woman is safe. All right, so she does her show. You know, I tip and and support and do all that. She leaves about 15 uh, minutes later. A man in a military uniform walks into the room, and I'm like, all right, it's time for me to go. <laughs> There's really? something about a male stripper that is just hilarious. Oh, to I me. thought it was the military part. <laughs> No, because I because I know that a veteran wasn't just randomly showing up to this after party. Well, I was like, course. oh, okay. So this is what we do next. Okay. So so shout out to the uh, the 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 uh, men in the uh, performing arts as well, but um, not for me. I'm gonna. I feel like I'd be cheating on Dell or something, getting a lap dance. <laughs> I don't know. Shout out to Adrian Dunn and uh, and all of its uh, musicians. All right, we got <laughs> we got and, and all of its entertainers. We got uh, one more quick accidental. Before we get into the second movement, I'm going to give this a, a natural, Scott, because I'm not really know which way I'm thinking about this. I'm reading here from lee.house.gov. Uh, Congresswoman Lee introduces Advancing Equity Through the Arts and Humanities Act. Uh, today, Congresswoman Barbara Lee introduced the Advancing Equity Through the Arts and Humanities Act to acknowledge the role that arts and humanities play in dismantling systemic racism in the United States. She says, this bill acknowledges the myriad benefits of participation in the arts, especially for young people, the cultural and social significance of representation in the arts and the systemic barriers that keep the arts out of reach is in marginalized communities. What do you think about the government (laughs) getting involved in this conversation? We can collaborate with arts institutions. We can say what we say here on Triloquy. We can have, you know, all of the folks doing everything that they're doing in their corners. Is this the government's business to be getting in? Let me say that this is the first, (laughs) normally I have like a 50-50 record with anticipating which way you're going to break on a story. Sure. And I nailed this one. (laughs) I knew it. So, from my perspective, it is great. Any money that gets into uh, the pockets of creators of color, I am for it. Mm -hmm. And it is, and yes, it's the government, but it is a way. And and I got to put, I got to root for a any way that that might accomplish this. My question to you would be: I know how you feel about like getting awarded a grant and not wanting to go and talk to the person or the, or the board <laughs> or whatever, who gave it to you, you know, yes, to, please give me the money and right, leave me alone. And, right. So <laughs> I, I get that. So it's safe to say that this money's coming out of the PWI, right? The go- I mean, if yes, the gov- the United States government being a PWI, a predominantly white institution. How, sure. do, how do you feel about that? I'm, but, but before I will answer that, 
before I get there, I know that, you know, unlike many men, Barbara Lee can walk and chew at the same time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there are other things going on in the world and in society that deserve some attention. Um, And this is one of them. But I can't help but to think, you know, should this be the priority? I mean, we're talking about um, reparations, big scale, but even more contemporarily canceling out student loans and and uh, this Roe v. Wade stuff that's going on. Is is this a priority? I mean, I'm sure you would or could come across someone who might read this and say, there's so much more happening in the world. This isn't really all that important, all things considered. Well, what would be your response to, to that? you? <laughs> There's a lot of people out here that this is very important right. to. Yeah, and I think yeah, uh, you're right. You know that that does boil it down. But even even as a musician, um, an artist, a creator, and someone who could benefit from this legislation as an individual, that question comes to mind: mm-hmm. Are th- are there bigger fish for us to fry? But regarding what you um, asked me. I want to go in uh, specifically into some of the language of this bill. I'll have yeah. a, I'll have a link um, in the uh, in the description. Uh, but it says here in section five of the bill. I feel like we're on C-SPAN or something now. It says in section five, no later than 180 days after the date of enactment of this act, the chairpersons in consultation with the advisory task force shall establish a competitive grant program within the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The purpose of which shall be to create and expand programs to support public and nonprofit arts. I'll, I'll let y'all read the rest of that. But I get shaky when we're talking about I have to go through the NEA and the NEH to get some money because the rules and the barriers they put up, um, including, you know, nonprofit status and, and all of those things, those fences are are very high. But even so, they're, they're trying to tier who this money will be for and who will be eligible for these grants. So again, under here in Section 5, um, it says, to carry out the components of the program, uh, we'll give priority in this order to the following eligible entities. Entities. So it says, one, public and nonprofit organizations that are BIPOC-led, and then two, public and nonprofit organizations that have majority BIPOC executive staff and board members, and then three, public and nonprofit organizations that have a proven history of effective and ongoing anti-racist work. I can't think of the orchestra that <laughs> qualifies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, uh, much less, you know, schools of music, conservatories, and all of those things. So that does clear the way for a lot of folks. But it also leaves the door wide open for Black folks to be left in the dust. I believe in class solidarity and, you know, folks of color coming together with our allies and our accomplices. And at the same time, if the primary organizations or individuals that this act will impact are public and nonprofit organizations that are BIPOC led. That means they could give out a hundred of these grants and there isn't a single black person being addressed or, or being helped. Um, that's, that's where I am with this mm-hmm. right now. We're, uh, I want to shout out Kwan East. Uh, I'm a part of a, a task force that's really going to uh, tear this uh, bill apart, and you know we're uh, organizing to to uh, get in touch with our representatives and those things to let them know our concerns. But for me, that has to be the the biggest concern. Is is there a way, from your perspective, to um, you know, in the spirit of equity? do something specifically for the blacks? I mean, what if it said, you know, public and nonprofit organizations that are black-led and then number two, BIPOC-led? And, you know, it's easy for me to make an argument for that, I suppose, as a black person. But 
you know, again, considering that there still have not been any reparations and the ecosystem, the musical ecosystem, financial, cultural ecosystems that the United States thrives on today wouldn't exist if it weren't for black people. I feel like room for something like that can be made and should be made in this bill. I see where you're coming from, and this is an important perspective, because when I read the press release, I started noticing all the vocabulary and thinking uh, the first thing to come to my mind would be black artists, mm -hmm. but it's not said specifically. Right. So I get that. Are you not encouraged by some of the language in that press release? Dismantling yeah. is one of them. Uh, systematic barriers. I mean, I don't know who this Barbara Lee is, yeah. but it sounds like she's been listening to Triloquy. <laughs> I think, I think in, in the same way that there are dog whistle words and phrases, I think there are words and phrases. How can I describe it? Maybe virtue signaling. And, I, and, right, I, right. and I'm not going to accuse Barbara Lee and her team of virtue signaling, but it's also not lost on them that people will see words like dismantling um, and, and phrases like uh, systemic barriers and have so much excitement that they don't read the fine print and they don't go into it. So, you know, I, I th this is a nuanced thing. I definitely feel happy that someone on Capitol Hill, you know, in a, in a federal way is looking at how the impact can be made there. Uh, I also think that we have to find all the dust in the corners, as I repeat, week after week, and really acknowledge the ways in which people can continue to be marginalized through these initiatives. And, and even if this becomes a law, how Black folks specifically can still fall by the wayside when we shouldn't. Speaking of trying to predict which way someone is going to decide to go, do you think someone like Representative Lee or Senator Lee, whichever it is, um, would be receptive to such a critique as, hey, can you specifically say black people first? Is that a big ask is what I'm, I think is what I'm a, at. I think it's a big ask for them because right. when we talk we about this. politics, you know, the, the phrase politically correct mm -hmm. comes to mind. So there are certain things that I'm sure a lot of politicians aren't places where they aren't willing to go. I mean, look how long it took them to get the uh, anti-lynching lynching, uh, bill going. So really censoring Black folks in arts legislation is something that I don't know that I can expect, but I don't know. It is something that I can hope for. And, you know, there's uh, uh, organizing and all that stuff going on down on the grassroots level. Again, shout out to Kwanis Floyd uh, for for uh, putting that together. We, we have a meeting uh, this coming. So when this comes out, the day this opus comes out, uh, we have a meeting where our homework was to uh, dig in and tear this bit of legislation apart and mm -hmm. bring in our concerns. So that's going to be my principal concern. But mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe by uh, the opener of season four. I'll have an update for everyone. Right. So here we go with the government, you know, doing their part <laughs> in, in all of this. Um, we're going to uh, go ahead and transition into the second movement with the Bob Marley tune. So um, again, roping us back to the Roe v. Wade thing. Um, I found myself listening to Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry, and I posted it as a means of encouragement for women. This isn't a time to sit back and feel defeated. This is a time to get up and stand up for what is right and do what we can. It just so happens that Bob Marley wrote another song that has exactly that message, Get Up, Stand Up. So we'll listen to that to get us into our second movement today. Preacher, man, don't tell me Heaven is on the 
second movement scott you know listening to this has reminded me of something so uh one of my uh friends adam sadbury a flute player black flute player uh principal flutist of the memphis symphony he was up here subbing with the minnesota orchestra last week so we met up and and had a a couple drinks last week and and we're talking about some stuff and one of the conversations we got into we were talking about the uh diaspora of music so the african diaspora and all of the different shades and types of music that is our responsibility to affirm. When I met up with him, I was just leaving a rehearsal of the Samuel Coleridge Taylor Nanette that Mm -hmm. I'll have performed it by the time this comes out, but uh, that I'm performing. And I guess I realized that I still have some work to do when it comes to affirming music from the African diaspora that really speaks to that Western European culture. And 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 conversation and and perspective because Bob Marley is somebody who I will platform and do everything I can you know whenever I'm I'm given programming freedom you know in in my projects I don't have that same uh, urge when it comes to music and I'm just you know let this podcast is called Triloquy I don't have that same urge uh, that 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 feeling of urgency when it comes to folks like Samuel Coleridge Taylor, or maybe even Chevalier de Saint-Georges, or, you know, all of those composers, Mm -hmm. because I feel like that's not really making the point that we're making. You know, when we talk about diversity, we're talking about diversity of aesthetic and diversity of thought and approach. And for me, folks like Samuel Coleridge Taylor, you know, the the, the so-called black mauler, as as they say, I I said on Twitter, that that must have been more shade than celebration because I don't love mauler. So, (laughs) Mm. but, you know, I I don't know, I I guess quickly, do do you have anything to to offer to that? I mean, there, there has to be some conversation that we can begin to have about the difference between Adrian Dunn and the and Chevalier de Saint George or Samuel Coleridge Taylor, as that conversation applies to equity and diversity in arts spaces. It, it, it go ahead. What you mean? I, I would not assign a name like that I, I to get, Adrian. I, I, I get no. What I guess what <laughs> I'm saying is, is it a step back to deplatform Samuel Coleridge Taylor? And those composers, um, because of the aesthetic that their music comes with. If you listen to uh, a piece of music by Samuel Coleridge Taylor, there would be no reason for you, with, with our contemporary ears and sensibilities, there would be no reason for anyone to assume or even know that that person was Black. So is that really the best use of equity to platform that sort of music as opposed to something that right. does speak more to yeah. a contemporary black experience. To what, what, however it lands diasporically, you know, reggae or hip hop or R&B or, or whatever, you know, blues, jazz, gospel. Um, but the Western classical as realized by black people, I, I need to do some thinking about that because I, right. I, I feel like there is a more equitable use of time and space than highlighting blackness in that way. Sure, and you can read reviews of Florence Price's music from the day when her music was being premiered and they held it up to Dvorak all the time. Right, you but, could, see, but, but Dvorak <clears throat> never wrote a Juba dance, you know, and folks who know their black history right. hear the blackness in that. You know what I'm saying, though, is that these composers were, were not writing in their 
in in the language of their heritage. Sure. They were writing in the European, the white mm-hmm. European heritage. Mm-hmm. Is and, it and there's a conversation that right. you know is it is it the best way? No. Is it a way? Yes. But how long can you hang your hat on? Oh, we need to. Th- this is the uh, the piece that will introduce them to the idea of, mm-hmm. of people of color in this music or a black person composing music. Uh, how long can you rest on that? Right. Saying th- this is entry level. That's the word. Those are the words I'm after. This is entry level black classical music. This is a C spot run. Right. <laughs> when you know. <laughs> right. So what are you gonna? Is that all you're going to do? Yeah, I, I I guess what we're what we're circling around is that you have to go a little further. But mm-hmm. but this is why I um, really venerate specifically the first symphony of William Grant. Still, you know, the Afro American right. symphony because it's very much in that symphonic style, not only aesthetically but um, the the theory. You know, we have four movements. We have a fast, slow dance movement, fast as a right. lot of symphonies do. You know, but it's all told through that black perspective and that aesthetic. And I know that there are a lot of people out there that feel like uh, William Grant still one is overplayed or we hear this all the time, but we're not whistling and humming it, humming it the way that we can whistle and hum Beethoven five, you right. know? So, right. so I think that in the spirit of equity, there's still more room that we can give to that piece of music as much as it's platformed. I loved, uh, I've loved performing it over the years and, um, and, or I think I've performed, I've gotten to perform it twice. Um, of course, airing it on the radio. I, I feel like that's that perfect middle ground. This is, yeah, whatever y'all want to call classical music, so-called classical music is very much that, and it's very much black, and you can hear that aesthetically in the music. And I think that can be a road toward affirming um, the classical, so-called classical aspects of the Duke Ellingtons and the Louis Armstrongs, Mm -hmm. James Johnson, you know, and all those folks, and then going even further and actually affirming the music that those composers are referring to as classical. So not just a jazz-infused or jazz-inspired something being an example of American classical, but jazz itself and blues itself being examples of that. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm going. That that, right. that message is beginning to spread to, mm-hmm. to more people and be heard. And I'm, I'm going to be preaching it until the day I die, because I feel like we can get there. We just have to open ourselves up to this relatively new concept and idea of contextualizing classical music as something for us. All right, well, we're here in the second movement. Scott and I are going to talk about some music that we've been living with uh, recently. I'm going to get us started this week. So talk to me about SWV. You were there when they were, when, when they were on the radio and they were hot. And, and they, you know, they still hot as far as I'm concerned. Musically, Sisters but. with voices. Yep. I was there. Yep. You're right. But what did you, what, what were you, what were you thinking about them? Did you ever have an uh, opportunity to air them or like on a radio? I don't. Yeah. I was a jazz host overnight on the weekends at that point, but at high school dances, wedding receptions. Oh yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, SWV got on. Well, I found my way back to SWV this past week through one of my favorite Drake tracks, but I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to start with the SWV. So uh, they have a, a tune out there called Anything. And back in the day, one of the things I miss about uh, especially hip hop and R&B, Scott, from like the 90s is that you had a song and then on the radio, as popular as the song itself, you would get the remix mm-hmm. maybe a month later or something, you know, variations on on whatever. Right. And SWV's Anything is a great example of that. So they have the song Anything, and then they have this remix, what they call the old school mix, featuring Wu-Tang. I want to listen to a little bit of the opening of it here. I like that, I like that, I like that. 
where does this aesthetic take you? When I yeah, hear, it was when, about- when I hear this music, it's hot outside. Um, I'm a kid, but I'm at a barbecue or there's something going on. My mama is telling me, oh, y'all not about to be running in and out of the house. You're going to be in or out. Right. Like, you know, that, that era of my life, <laughs> it, it really shines when I hear this type of music. What, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, you, you are an adult. I'm so. thinking of an era and an aesthetic, too, because that drum track was those drum sounds were all across the yep. radio. My prerogative. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, whenever I think of SWV, I think of weak. I mean, oh yeah, come on, yeah. Who who didn't hum along with that song when and it came it, on the radio? You have, if you have the album, there is uh, an acapella oh, remix of that oh. that I like playing along with. So you can have them singing it, and I'll sit at the keyboard and play chords or accompaniment or or whatever. I almost thought about doing that oh, this week, but you know, I found myself to to this track. So you know, in the spirit of I don't know practice and music education, go find the acapella version. I'll put it on the playlist for this uh, opus. Go find the acapella version of Week and see if you can't play along with it or, or provide some sort of accompaniment. Mm. But but anyway, so when it comes to this track, anything uh, when you get later on into the track, um, you you have the women just really going there and um and uh singing up high and getting into what you know the classical side will have descant and there's one particular uh part of this that is going to connect us to the drake that i have to share as well let's listen So that line, anything you want me to do, I'll do it. That that part, I'm mm-hmm. here singing on the mic. Um, that <laughs> caught my ear in this track by Drake. It's a tune called Shot For Me. I would listen to this song a lot. You know, we were talking about healing earlier, right? So a part of my healing process would be listening to this song where Drake, um, in the way that I interpret it for myself, is singing about... Um, uh, you know, a past situation, uh, separating from a person or an institution or whatever, and how they're living in their truth and happy, you know, even on the other side of that, because they know that they can't be replaced. As a matter of fact, wherever you are, take a shot for me, you know, because nobody ever did it quite like me. Here's the opening of, the, of this tune, Shot For Me by Drake. And you're wasted with your latest. Yeah, I'm the reason why you always getting faded. Take a shot for me. So if you were listening very closely that anything you want me to do, I'll do it was sampled in the background. You can barely hear it in there, but the more I listened to that track and the more I repeated it in my ears in my self-affirming and healing (laughs) zone, I found myself singing that part of it, you know, singing that distant accompaniment and, you know, looking up, going up and trying to remember what the sample was and, you know, doing my research online. That's how I got looped back around to SWV and that track, anything, specifically Mm. the remix to that. All of this, 
you know, just to offer an example of the history and the technique and the culture of black music and black American music. And yes, I know Drake is from Canada, but, you know, when we talk <laughs> about black folks from this part of the world, that juice, that that complexity, uh, that history, it's as unique and as rich as the so-called classical tradition, if not more. I think it's time for more of us to figure out how to integrate these ideas and these conversations into our music education, into our performance, and even into our advocacy, because I think you can teach theme and variations through that sort of thing. You can um, think about uh, just the art of sampling in general, if you want to uh, uh, teach youth about uh, Pro Tools and you know making music and all that stuff. Anyway, I just think it's uh, really beautiful and really unique how traditions over the years within Black music still touch each other. You know, so if Drake is touching SWV in that way, and then SWV is touching that drum track that you're talking about and where that comes from, it's going to root back to what people call classical music at some point or what should be called classical music. And that's just, you know, my musical way of experiencing that in my day to day, thinking about how those connections are made and thinking about it as something that's as rich and as complex as Western classical music. So that's what I got for this week, a little mix of SWV and Drake. Shout out to Interesting him. to listen to the evolution in that drum track too. Um, you know, because now it's all 808, right? Well, not right. all, not all, but that's but what's popular. Yeah, right. Yeah, interesting yeah. Uh, transition. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, what are you sharing with us this week? I've been thinking lately about how some radio stations out there are able to blend genres pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mixed format, as some uh, might say. And uh, yeah, and even, you know, n- not even, you know, waiting until a certain hour or time of day to make a transition from one format to the other, but like multiple in one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about mainly KEXP up in the Seattle area has uh, a live series that I love listening to. And recently they had in a, uh, a woman from Northern Iceland. Oh, wow. Her name is. Edith Evenson, and she is a pianist, but a post-classical composer. Come on, post-classical. Right, that's how she identifies. But I caught her set on KEXP, and I was riveted. Mm. At the, so so at new the, to you, music. New to me, yeah, music. Nice. But, you know, it's there's there's the reverence for that history, mm-hmm. where, where, where the music comes from, and her voice in it and where she plans to take it and it is a a shout out to her home too which i think is not only just the natural beauty but where she is in her history where iceland is in its musical history it's all in here See how when the strings come in, that that slow emergence of the cello and the strings behind. The title of that track is Dawn is Near. And even though that might have a bit of a melancholy sounding start, isn't that the way pre-dawn is? 
a little dark. Listen, talk about holding back tears. The beginning is near. It is very easy for me to think back some of the stuff that I've had to go through, you know, this past year, this past uh, year and a half, and just hoping that something better and something brighter is just beyond, and I can't quite see it, but just hoping it's there. So, of course, in the title, I'm thinking about that, but even in the aesthetic of the music, there's I, I can hear some hope or some sure. some some longing for for something more. Incredibly, incredibly beautiful music. Let, let's check out the a bit of the uh, end of this track here. You know, just as we were talking about last week a little bit, I, you know, I, I was I was saying that you know equity um, and inclusion, all of those things, the racial aspect is a part of it, an important part of it, the part of it that I center and foreground. And there are so many other ways in which the industry and the uh, and the experience of this music can bloom if we acknowledge and affirm and platform music and musicians who fall outside of those norms, even if they aren't black or or people of color. I can imagine you having something really powerful or interesting or engaging to say if that piece of music came across your playlist at work on on the radio. And I feel like that would be in line with the work that we're doing, with the work that so many other people are doing. Because yes, Beethoven and Schubert and all of those folks wrote some really incredible piano sonatas. One of my favorite piano pieces is uh, one by Beethoven, the uh, shoot. He he wrote it for uh, one of his friends. It's in B-flat. It's the one that goes... Yeah, thank you. very, And I'm glad I could sing it for you to recognize. But So anyway, that music is there. And I I love it. I I have a personal relationship with it, and I think it's better to take pieces of music like that and to use that time and space and to platform it because there are folks who you're bringing in, into the fold more than you can with Beethoven when you have that music, not only aesthetically but the real life approximation that can be made with it based on the stories that you tell or or what you have to offer around it. Dawn is near. The beginning is near. Mm-hmm. The beginning is near, indeed. And uh, so is, uh, as is the beginning of the final third movement for uh, season three. So uh, oh, it's like, it's like one thirty in the afternoon <laughs> on the last day of school. So um, last week I spoke a little bit about the Black Orchestral uh, Network and its founders and their, uh, and their goals and initiatives uh, moving into this next orchestral season. Well, this week um, I sat down with Alex Lang and Jennifer Arnold. Alex Lang is someone I've known for years. When I began thinking about this journey, I, be- I believe it was back in like 2012 or 2013, um, we both attended um, a diversity, con- they weren't using the word equity back then. Uh, we attended a diversity conference um, that was centered on the arts. And that's how we met and talked 
talked and everything. So we've known and, and had a lot of uh, collaborations. And he's one of the founders of the Black Orchestral Network. Uh, Jen Arnold um, was on season one of Triloquy way mm-hmm. back when, uh, formerly uh, violist with the Oregon Symphony in Portland. She wanted to do more. So she quit that job to get into arts administration and now works with the Richmond Symphony. And she's also one of the co-founders of the Black Orchestral Network. So we talk about the goals um, of the Black Orchestral Network, um, what they see as some of the opportunities, uh, some of the challenges, and you know how this can be yet another way that we can transform the arts ecosystem. To get uh, us into the conversation, I want to um, use a, a, a showcase, a performance uh, that features Jen Arnold. So Damian Jeter, a composer uh, out on the uh, Pacific, uh, black composer out in the Pacific Northwest, he actually has a premiere this week, the uh, African-American uh, Requiem. But uh, a couple of years ago, he composed a tune called Neo Soul. It's a really cool string quartet piece um, that, again, like I said, features Jennifer Arnold here on uh, Viola. The other musicians are Emily Cole, Shin Young Kwan, and Marilyn De Oliveira. Uh, their take on Damien Jeter's Neo Soul to get us into my conversation with Jen Arnold and Alex Lang from the Black Orchestral Network. young people all the time who think it's rigged all these auditions are rigged and I used to be like I don't know but now I'm not sure so sure I'm just not it just feels harder than when it was 20 years ago it feels harder to win a job because it just feels unfair and it just you hear stories of these orchestras and then I mean I still have colleagues in most orchestras and I ask and it's shenanigans just shenanigans but nobody publicly wants to talk about it uh, I'm glad that you uh, say that, in your opinion, it's harder to win uh, a job now, something that folks who have had tenure for 30 and 40 years, I think, need to hear. But that's that, that's a, that's another point and another conversation. Before we talk more about um, the Black Orchestral Network, um, I'll throw this out to either of you. This is not called the BIPOC Orchestral Network or the POC Orchestral Network. Was that a part of the uh, conversation in, in, in forming this initiative? No, it was always for black people. So how do you make a case for that, considering all of the BIPOC branded things that are going on out there in art spaces? I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. Sorry. I mean, I think, look, as, as a group, we I don't we don't have we, we bear no antipathy towards how people define themselves, be it BIPOC or POC. Um, you know, uh, individually, I think we subscribe to sort of different um, frameworks and ways of describing, you know, the world and people's place in it. Uh, and as a network, um, to Jen's point, you know, this is what we were focused on building from the beginning. We think we have a unique perspective and an experience, and uh, we wanted to, um, you know, build the ways and means for us to connect and amplify and and grow that. 
So let's talk a little bit more about the foundations of the Black Orchestral Network. What were those initial meetings like? Who uh, was in the room for those initial meetings? What what is what? what give us the background. I'll let Alex take this one. Oh, Jen and I are both laughing. I mean, I I, I would quote uh, uh, well the great one of the great things. Let me just say about the Black Orchestral Network is that we've gotten to share uh, lingo and language, and we've all I think developed little little phrases and turns of phrases. So I'm going to quote that others have brought to the table. I'm going to quote Weston Sprott, who would, I think, you know, initially we were on the struggle bus for a little while, uh, you know, trying to figure out. Um, what was the work to be done? We were really, uh, we really benefited from uh, the participation of Alicia Nelson and Stephanie Matthews early on. Um, we, um, you know, had to figure out though in this universe of possibilities, you know, what was our work to do right now, right? And finding an authentic piece of work that we could do that we thought, look, if we do nothing else. Like, can we, what, what is that piece of work? And think, and the idea is that, well, we would start with that and um, carry ourselves and our message in a way such that hopefully other people will be attracted to this. And we recognize that what this can and become, you know, is, is, is yet to be determined. Um, but, so that's why I would describe it. It was a little bit of a, a we had, we had some, we had, uh, we, we, we traveled a few miles on the struggle bus for a little bit, trying to figure that out. What is our work to do? Jen, who are some of those other uh, we's, you know, who, who, who are the individuals really behind this and, you know, how their, their roles in the orchestral industry playing a role into this initiative? Yeah, so I can just say that the founding group right now is, uh, or not right now, the founding group is uh, Alex Lang, me, Jen Arnold, um, Joy Peyton Stevens, cellist, former cellist of Seattle Symphony, um, Dave Norville, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful young person who um, came to us, I think, from NEC Black Student Union, but now works for various organizations like Castle of Our Skins and and um, From the Top, I think. Um, and Titus Underwood, principal of Nashville Symphony, Shay Scruggs, who works uh, at the Curtis Institute of Music, and Wesson Sprott from the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. I think that's, did I miss anyone, Alex? I don't think I did. Um, but actually, Gary, I wanted to touch base uh, back on something you said of like why Bond started and um, kind of the history. So for me, I can just speak personally for me. I always, I've wanted to start an advocacy group for a long time for black people. I grew up, you know, I'm a member of the Urban League. Um, uh, I grew up with parents who were members of, you know, XYZ black organization. Mm -hmm. And so I've always wanted to have something like this for us in orchestral music, because there are other organizations, as we know, ISBM is a great example. Um, uh, NAM is a great example of organizations that have been around for black people and musicians, but something that was a little bit more specialized for orchestral work. Um, so this has been on my mind for a while, but, but I think I really felt the heat for it as like a, as I talk to more young people who feel like they don't have a voice right now in the industry, I felt that we needed to have a group voice to have, you know, to reach more, to reach whatever the industry, you know, the, the powers that be are. But more importantly, I actually have been thinking a lot about the Eartha Kitts and the Ozzie Davises and the um, Paul Robesons mm -hmm. and the 
um, Ruby Dees and Marian Anderson. That's why I actually thought about it. Um, you know, activists, artists, and how they really put themselves on the line, right? And were arrested and and um, deported. Some of them, you know, and all these other other things. Josephine, Josephine Baker's, you name it, and yeah. Harlem Renaissance. And I was just thinking that I feel like I don't do enough, <laughs> you know, like personally, I feel like I'm not out there. I might, you know, I'll post things. I'll write letters. I'll do podcasts. I'll march, you know, I'll go out there, but I'm not getting arrested and I'm not like really, really doing enough. And so this probably is yet is still not enough, but it's something, it's a start. And that's just kind of how I personally feel about it. I feel as artists especially where some of us are this founding group in our careers, we have to be publicly vocal um, so that our colleagues in this industry can, cannot just turn a blind eye, you know, I'm on stage with you and I feel this way. And that's just my personal um, feeling that like my colleagues can't just pretend that, you know, black people are in a corner and they don't exist. I'm Alex, I'm, I'm going to ask you this in the in the framework of one of the names that uh, that Jen threw out there. So Paul Robeson, the first time I heard that name was in 2018. One of my radio colleagues um, did a break where he was basically saying, I know that many of your opinions of this man might not be great, but you have to consider who's telling the story and X, Y, Z. And this was a white man saying this, you know, so my introduction to Paul Robeson was someone whose reputation as an activist played a big role in people's public opinion of who he was, you know, as an artist, much less a, a human being. So with that being said, I, I wonder how much uh, you think about your reputation within the classical industry, within the orchestral uh, industry, Industry, considering what you're doing now are you afraid that this sort of work will disqualify you from certain rooms or mm -hmm. uh, make you fall out of favor with certain gatekeepers I mean I, I I the short answer is I mean maybe I don't I don't know I'm not really <laughs> thinking about that quite honestly I feel yeah, like yeah. If, if if you've been from my perspective this just feels this work with Black Orchestral Network is some of the work that I'm you know most proud of. I've learned so so much in helping to sort of you know push this out um, into the world uh, about about people, about myself, about leadership, about all kinds of stuff, right? Um, I'm not really, but I also feel like this is for me personally just like an extension of work I've been doing, you know, around the way I understand music, music not just being sound, music being sound, words, and people. So for me, this feels just like, you know, a part of my practice, a part that I'm most proud of and most excited to sort of, you know, see where it goes and benefit from it, right? I mean, I, I think that, you know, the world we see is one in which this in whole community will be um, more connected and um, more able to have the artistic, professional, etc life that they that they're seeking for themselves i mean i want to pull on that thread a little bit more gin i mean we have to acknowledge that there are orchestral musicians black orchestral musicians who feel like taking on activist causes may be an impediment to to their careers uh with that in mind can you know we consider the black orchestral network a group that's uh working on behalf of those people i don't know i just think it's important to acknowledge that reality that so many people live with yeah, I think, I think at the people who have 
initially sign the letter, this is their statement to say, I'm ready to take on some of this, not some of this, I, I all of this, you know, um, I think that was one of the reasons why um, early on we we thought about this Dear American Orchestra's letter and having people sign. Because if people saw who um, were initial signers of this, you know, I think more people would feel comfortable for those people who didn't. And we saw this actually in our conversations um, that we had with individuals. People pretty much who... Uh, signed on right away, but there were a couple of hesitant people who have, this is out of their comfort zone um, and had questions about how, you know, this would work, how the rollout would work. And we had some conversations. Um, and I think it's a credit to where we, I think people are just tired, right? Yeah. They're tired <laughs> of talking about this, you know, and they're in anywhere from whether it's two years into their career, three years in a, a professional orchestra to 40, 50 years or retired. You know, um, I think people are ready for truth to come to light. I, uh, I shared that May 2nd letter with uh, the Triloquy audience uh, a few weeks ago or, you know, when it, when it came out on May 2nd. But I wonder uh, if, if Alex, uh, if you can give folks maybe a, a recap. What was this letter? What was the intention behind the letter? Yeah, so... Dear American Orchestras, what the intention is to issue a, a point of view and a call to action. Um, and the call to action centers specifically around hiring black orchestral musicians. Towards that, we sort of then break down what we th where are the sort of um, leverage points. So we, we talk about the need, first and foremost, to change the mindset, to understand that hiring black orchestral musicians is an opportunity worth working for, not a problem to be solved. This is to the benefit of American orchestras. Um, we then talk about um, being accountable. Um, we talk about removing barriers. So some of the things that Jen talked about, there are um, we talk about uh, collecting the data. Um, we talk about uh, supporting emerging talent through greater connection to um, uh, black orchestral musicians who are training now, be that in fellowship programs or conservatories of school and uh, schools of music. Um, and the other thing that is happening through and the other reason why we penned the letter was to catalyze this network in this community. So this, we don't anticipate necessarily spending, um, you know, the, the rest of our days talking to predominantly white institutions about um, how they sh black people should show up inside their organizations. Um, we, we don't, we don't intend to, what we intend to do is be responsive to this network um, to grow it, to grow this model of participatory leadership, that we've used to sort of start ourselves and and to see what this community can do and be. And Jen, we're having this conversation on the uh, day of solidarity where folks are supposed to, you know, uh, get on social media and within their communities and letting folks know that, you know, you, we stand in solidarity with what the Black Orchestral Network is doing. Have you seen any um, institutional response? Well, what are well, what are the reactions from orchestras telling you at, at these very early stages? Well, we're seeing some great responses from orchestras today. Um, so far you said today, <laughs> today, well, today's the day of solidarity. Right. So we have to today. <laughs> today, May 9th. <laughs> um, no, we're seeing great, uh, some great initial participation. Um, some of the larger orchestras, um, we just didn't know, 
we didn't know who would support, you know, who would publicly support, I should say. Um, so we saw today New York Phil, we saw Cincinnati Symphony, we, we've seen Atlanta Symphony, Boston Symphony, um, my uh, current orchestra, Richmond Symphony, um, supported is, uh, is supporting the Day of Solidarity. We're seeing um, all, well, a lot of the Boston orchestras, Boston Symphony, uh, the Boston Symphony Workshop Pops, uh, Tanglewood, um, you name it. I mean, we're seeing a lot, I think right now, more East Coast participation, but we're hoping it shifts to the West Coast and mm-hmm. uh, all, all through, I should say, Milwaukee as well and the Cleveland Orchestra. But um, what's important, actually, one of the things, um, when a lot of our initial signers, we have to remember, um, the Cleveland Orchestra is a great example. Three, Their three Black members signed were initial signers. What would that say if they didn't support it, right? right. What do you what 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 would that say as a musician in that organization? I don't, I can't speak for them, but um, Boston Symphony, Owen Young, um, the only black member of that orchestra signed our is an initial signer. So um, I think a lot of orchestras are looking at that and saying, you know, um, we need to we need to support our black musicians. So yeah. we will see where it goes from there tomorrow and the next day, you know in the next weeks and coming weeks. But at least today, we're having some public support, which is very important. I'm in community uh, in in the work that I do. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I just want to shout out another public support. Uh, The Apollo uh, supported us. Oh, great. Yeah, that was great. Well, you know, what I was going to say was I'm, I'm in community with a lot of different types of activists across uh, different fields. And what I get most when I'm dealing with people who aren't, you know, within uh, the, the orchestral field and, you know, everything that we're used to is the idea that diversity, so-called diversity initiatives are only marching black people or marching marginalized people into spaces where they will ultimately be harmed and there is uh, no evidence of the contrary. What's your reaction to that? We're getting black people's in orchestra, getting black people in orchestras to what end? I think it's a mix. Elsie, you want to go first or? No, you can go, Jen. I think it's a mixed thing. I mean, I think the more black people you get into orchestras, I think the culture of the organization will shift. Hmm. And I, I definitely, I mean, I've spoken, I think, I can't remember if we talked about this before. I think I have on your, on, on Triloquy, but just when I entered the Oregon Symphony, I think I mentioned that we were playing gospel performances and everybody was sitting straight and no one was moving and it's gospel music. I'm like, I grew up with this music, right? You know, and so I was like clapping my hands and, and um, <clears throat> you know, singing along and all those things. And the first year people were like, uh, and then by year two, people started doing it. By year four and five, people were joining the chorus, you know, <laughs> and singing a gospel tune or whatever. Because often, as we know in, in any of this, if Black people are... Um, uplifted and provided for and um it it helps everything right it moves pushes everything forward so um i do think more black people in orchestras will help change the culture of the orchestra for sure i -hmm. know that um we just have to be able to get into these organizations we just cannot be blocked anymore um but i definitely think 
it's going to take time to create a safe space. And I do think, I mean, we've had this conversation in bond before, not everyone is willing to um, put themselves in those kind of risky environments mm-hmm. to, you know, to burden, to, to deal with that. But then there are some people who are people are, there are people out there who are ready to, to fight the fight in an orchestra at least. So Alex, what is bonds leverage? You know, what, 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 uh, I, I can only imagine, and I won't name a group, but I can imagine that there are groups that might not be, uh, so responsive to, uh, the call that Bond is, is putting out there. What if, what about the orchestras who just don't care or, or, or aren't responsive? Is, will, will we be instructed to not buy those concert tickets or not audition for that orchestra? What, what is, well, what does that part of the conversation look like? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously we'll see um, in, in, in terms of, you know, what type of um, you know, motivation or leverage we bring to bear, depending on the circumstance. Let me just before we move on to this, uh, I, you know, I think the, the point you raise about our orchestras, good places for black people yeah. is, is a fair point of inquiry. I think um, what we see is a there are um artists right now who have who have made that decision for themselves right and there are artists um so we 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 can we can we can move the needle we think in a way that will impact and bring material benefit to those artists uh we also think that this is work that we could do that's worth doing that will help catalyze the formation of a larger, rich black orchestral network, a, th- a network of thriving black orchestral artistry. And where that goes, I think, you know, is it remains to be seen. I think that we believe, though, that uh, there's a better future for all of us black orchestral artists in in um, to you know in, in greater connection to one another. Um, getting back to this question of. Um, uh, well, sorry, Gary. I just wanted just to speak. Le- leverage. Leverage. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we'll see. I mean, there's a degree to which to the whole conversation is like, do we necessarily want to lever some place into bringing on a black person that they don't want? That's a good point. Right. Like, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the move. We'll find out. Now, if we if we see that there is, you know, um, we are going to try to support, you know, these these are still um, good musical jobs in, in in many measures in terms of a salary, uh, benefits, consistent performance schedule and work life. You know, th- there are reasons why these jobs are sought for. And it's not just the um, quote unquote prestige. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a luxury in many ways as an instrumental artist to have the predictability and the security and um, you know the the sort of robust management that mo- even the smallest orchestras have. So these are still good jobs by those measures, and I think that is also driving people in this space. And then the question is, is you know what we mentioned earlier. You know, you you've spent time in this industry as an orchestral musician, and while you don't practice in that way exclusively anymore, it did help sort of you did help you, I think, to some degree, create a foundation around yourself. Um, both Jen and I have done that. So you can you can take these jobs and their consistency and build a practice for yourself that is satisfying. That may or may not involve leading your orchestra, leaving your orchestra. Mm-hmm. I think that's a role for the Black Orchestral Network to be playing as well in terms of supporting the richness of our whole practice, which to the point we made earlier often doesn't actually 
intersect with our or, or with our organizations because they're not set up to intersect with musicians that way right which i think is to their deficit but that's uh, to your point garrett maybe a conversation for another podcast mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, garrett, a name, I, oh, go ahead go ahead oh, i'm sorry can i also add i think part of the leverage is that while the dear american orchestra's letter is a letter to the industry it's really asking the public Mm -hmm. audience members, donors, and everyone else who has an interest, music lovers, you name it, who has an interest in orchestras to take part in and support us, right? And so I think it's more of a push for people who are outside of the industry to um, have some some say in what goes on in their community organization, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to help us have that, have this push. And, and, that's, and promote this change. That's exactly where I was going to uh, point the conversation. I, I want to say the name uh, Donna Walker Kuhn. You know, I, I first met her well outside of arts. We we both chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. So I met her through Buddhist circles. But um, I was very happy to see her involvement in this. You know, among the many things that she's taught me over the years is the very real difference between community engagement and audience development and how a lot of people conflate those things, but how they're actually uh, completely different. So, you know, all of that uh, to the subject of audiences. Uh, Alex, I wonder, if, uh, Jen touched on it, but Alex, I wonder if you can speak a little bit more uh, to the hope for impact when it comes to audiences. It's not just about who's on the stage, right? Right, absolutely. So we talk about audiences in Dear American Orchestra, and we talk about audiences, um, you know, in, in, in and amongst ourselves. You know, we see a concert hall to not just be a, a building designed to amplify sound, but it's also a space for cultural affirmation. Um, and um, the ability uh, for black people to participate in the fullness of an orchestral experience, not just the sounds, but also the cultural affirmation piece, you know, those are, are limited and we want to see those grow. That's in part has to do with who's on the stage, right? Your ability to project onto the stage a sense of people like me do this. Um, but it's not just about that. There are, it also has to do, of course, with what you're playing and where the concert is. And, you know, orchestras talk a lot about community engagement, but it usually, it often involves like kind of a one-way street, right? Which involves like people coming to them. And so um, we definitely think that, uh, you know, the, the audience is a key part of this whole thing. I have just a couple uh, more questions I want to ask, but, but before we get into that, uh, how can folks uh, support Bond, learn more about Bond, and, and, and learn how they can be a part of this movement? Well, you can find us on all the socials. Um, so Twitter, at Black Orchestral, um, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, at Black Orchestral Network, um, and on our website, um, blackorchestralnetwork.org. So how do you um, creatively, intellectually address the, uh, the issue of repertoire when it comes to this conversation? Let's say somebody figures out how to make their whole orchestra black. Let's, let, let's speak hyperbolically here. Is an all-black orchestra performing a Brahms overture, a Mozart um, concerto, and a Rachmaninoff symphony? enough is that what we're working toward what are the next steps beyond getting black folks into these groups i love this question go ahead alex well i i would say that i and i think you would agree garrett that if that's what they want to play 
right, as an ensemble, and they have the means to actually not just be like a top-down typical orchestra, but actually like this is who that this is what this group of people wants to play. I mean, free means free, right? So uh, let me just speak to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having said that, no, of course. Not. I mean, I, I I think we 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 the 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 perspective that we're speaking from we know can be. Um, um, deepened and mirrored and illuminated by black conductors, black composers, black soloists, black audience members, black managers. You know, uh, so our our belief is that when the, the more that community starts speaking to each other, um, you know, the, the, that'll definitely impact all of those things, and also like where the concert maybe is happening, and. What's the role of any number of other things? You know, how participatory is the concert, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Alex Lang featured there on clarinet in that arrangement of leaning on the everlasting arms. Yet another example of those, you know, old church tunes that I remember from way back when that I consider a part of my classical training. You know, the reason Mm -hmm. why I can sing a little bit and know how to harmonize (laughs) with somebody, you know, is church. And that's one of the pieces of music uh, that was there. So huge shout out to Jen Arnold and Alex Lang and everyone at the Black Orchestral Network for the work that they are doing. I, I really see an opportunity for some uh, big impact. But one of the things that we did talk about, Scott, uh, was, you know, leverage. Is the moral judgment enough for institutions to push or shift or make change? What, what do you think uh, about that? Do you think a moral judgment on, uh, on an, let's say, an orchestra? Well, that, that's what they're focused on. So an, a moral judgment on an orchestra with, you know, millions of dollars in their endowment. They don't have audience problems. They all white, but the, the, the seats are filled, filled every week. You know, is that moral judgment um, in the face of financial stability? enough in that your perspective seem, yeah that does seem to be the biggest thing doesn't it yeah um and and, there, and 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 let me add this you know you know why why you're continuing to to think about that when we first started triloquy with minnesota public radio apm that is one of the things that i feel like producers and folks who are trying to promote the show were um were wanting people to understand that triloquy is never going to have the same audience as a Prairie Home Companion or Live From Here or, mm-hmm. you know, the the, the big uh, NPR shows. But there is a, a a moral aspect to it, a values aspect that makes it valuable. Like so, a social credit. You right, mean. exactly. So, so again, with, with that in mind, is this moral judgment concept, from your perspective, enough to make orchestras want to shift and to say, okay, you know what? We're hiring a Black musician right now. Is that enough? The, the moral the moral judgment aspect of it it it's it really seems to me like the orchestras around us are are at least putting the effort out Minnesota orchestra has has done that taken you know the the b-list composition yeah. and, and replaced it with something from a living or yeah. person of color I, I, I was on and the Saint Paul chamber orchestra talking about that yeah, yeah. Saint Paul chamber orchestra as well you know is is easy it's very easy for me to get on this microphone and shit on the orchestras mm-hmm. 
you know, and uh, specifically the hometown bands here where where we live. Uh, I've been on record saying some not so friendly things about the Minnesota Orchestra here right. on Triloquy. Right. I don't walk anything back, and they're doing some great work right. these days. They're you know just this past week uh, they had a, a a composer commission concert. Well, shout out to Henry Dorn, one of my friends from uh, undergrad. I knew him as a trombone player. I didn't know he was a composer, but he had a piece of music performed by black man performed by the Minnesota Orchestra this week. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you know I went to the Christmas Pops to see Paviel featured. Right. So you know they're doing some things. So, so I'm not here to say that the institutions aren't doing anything, but I think what the Black Orchestral Network is really pushing these orchestras to understand is that there are radical changes you can make right now, including hiring someone black right now so that your ensemble is no longer all black or all white or barely has any black people in it. Hire the black person for? The stage, specifically for the stage. A musician, right. Right. Okay. That I get because when you start looking at the behind behind the stage, Mm -hmm. the the back of house people like your presidents and, and directors and things like that, we know that nobody's just going to walk away yeah. from their job. Right. Okay. So how do we increase uh, the the diversity there without creation of BS titles and positions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's something else for me to chew on because maybe what I see as the BS steps are required for the actual action maybe I don't, yeah i'm you know. i'm i'm not sure but anyway yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll keep up with what the black orchestral network is doing i'm you know they're rooting for everybody black so i'm rooting for them and um and i think you know we we may see some some radical changes by the end of uh the 22-23 orchestral season so so when we're here uh you know in the in the finale of of season 4 maybe we'll say remember last year when we were talking about x y and z well now all of the orchestras are very diverse Every Everyone has done what they do, have needed to do. The ecosystem is perfect. We made it. You know, made it. So. Shut, shut the website down, you guys. We're done. It's all done. All right. Well, anyway, we're going to get in, into the uh, fourth movement, the Triloquy movement for the finale of season three with uh, another performance featuring the Downtown Chamber series that uh, gave us that uh, recording, a bit of that recording we listened to, the Leaning on the Everlasting Arms with Alex Langnam. So they uh, recorded uh, another track by Josie Adams that I want to use to get us into the Triloquy. It's called Song. For Julie. Let's take a listen to a little bit of this. make the case for using uh, a bit of that piece of music today here in a a second. But, you know, I just want to start off this uh, final fourth movement by saying that this project is not what I thought it would be. You know, when I dreamed up Triloquy, I wanted to offer um, to the podcasting ecosystem something for folks in the arts to listen to that speaks to their experiences and their sensibilities and also isn't the most milk toast friendly 
safe space in podcasting, mm-hmm. you know, as is, as is evidenced by the numbers that I look at behind the scenes for Triloquy. People are here for the mess, okay? <laughs> if we're talking about something messy or petty, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, that's when y'all are really tuned in. And I, you know, so when I, when I started Triloquy, I really wanted to offer something entertaining for folks in the arts and something that is more than intro to classical music or, or whatever, and X, Y, and Z. Well, this project, Scott, is, you know, as I, as I don't have to tell you, has grown into so much more and has branched off and, you know, created opportunities for me to continue to make a living for myself. Not only that, but more importantly, to shift the ecosystem so that more people have a chance to be successful in it. You know, folks often ask me, well, when will your work be done? Right. So for me, my answer to that question is when I want to go and give my life to one of these orchestras, to just be a bassoonist and give my time and energy and what I have to offer to the world. If if I ever feel comfortable giving myself to one of those performing arts institutions again, that's when I believe the work will be done. I'm not there. I'm not ready to join anybody's orchestra because I'm not going to dedicate my life to music from Western Europe or music that centers that aesthetic and that musical perspective. So that's why I have, you know, really been, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to not only um, co-host and produce this show, but uh, to uh, produce and host um, shows on public radio right here from this studio uh, that are getting national syndication. I have two more coming up mm-hmm. uh, this year, uh, in addition to a whole bunch of side projects, the guest lectures and speeches and um, trainings I've been able to do and collaborate with all of these institutions. You know, I got to uh, uh, speak for an Apollo event. Uh, during season three of Triloquy, um, I'll be back at the Kennedy Center headlining as a speaker, not as a musician, but as a speaker for the uh, second time here in a couple weeks. So there are all sorts of things that you know I'm doing with my life and my energy that I'm so grateful for. And to continue that trajectory, to continue to fight and get to that next level, I have to be able to speak uh, more openly and with a clear spirit. And that has required me to go on the journey of really um, offering forgiveness to certain people, not for them, but for myself, just as Viola Davis was speaking to in the um, in the opening. Uh, and I'll offer, also quickly offer this. So, you know, folks who listen to this closely are aware of uh, the way Buddhism has been a part of my journey of seeing more and healing. So, you know, one of the uh, practices that uh, we do every day as Nichiren Buddhists, we um, pray, we chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo to something called the Gohonzon, which is a physical embodiment of our own Buddha nature, the Buddha nature that we believe all human beings have, that greater self that we can tap into and chant you know, to that physical embodiment of it is supposed to inspire us to tap into that and to think about how we can operate in our highest self that day or that week or, you know, whatever we're doing. So on this physical embodiment, the Gohunzen, you know, and, and it's a sacred thing. So, you know, we don't take pictures of it. It's not on tape, on camera. Um, it's nothing like that. Um, but if you get to see one, um, there is a little, it's inscribed with all sorts of um, Japanese and Chinese writing. And there's one little portion of it that uh, a couple characters that translate to devil king, which is to say <laughs> that in each of us is our worst 
self, you know, our our bottom self. And we have to be aware of its presence and its existence to understand when that is taking hold instead of our inherent Buddha nature. Um, That devil king is something that I need to keep as far back in the periphery as I can, and I have to stop feeding him. How do we feed that devil king? We feed that devil king with anger, with uh, holding on to grudges, resentment. If we hang on to those feelings, we're giving ourselves the opportunity to act not in our highest self. So all of that to say, I am ready to, you know, on this platform, say that Minnesota Public Radio is an organization that is in the rearview mirror for me in a real way. It's taken. It, it took me about. You know, I was fired from that job in uh, in August of 2020. It took me about six or seven months to stop being angry every day. And then it took me probably another six or seven months all the way up into this past January or February to really be able to confidently say that I am healed. And that is a situation that does not define me, um, has offered me opportunity more than I would have otherwise, but not something that I'm going to view or contextualize within some sort of hate or hurt or anguish. So, I'm going to say a few names here, okay? Not last names. I'm going to say a few first names. Joe, I forgive you. You didn't have to write what you ha- what you wrote about me concerning uh, my termination, but I forgive you. To uh, Deshaun and Brad, I forgive you. Your public remarks bu- burying me and throwing me under the bus unnecessarily were very hurtful, but I forgive you for that. To Jennifer, to Val, to Lynn, and all of my other former colleagues, your silence really hurt me in the moment and over those subsequent months, but I forgive you. And most of all, the woman who hired me and the woman who fired me, Julie, that's why I use that piece of music song for Julie, Julie, I forgive you. And it's not for any of you. It's for me because I have a lot on my plate I have stuff due now. There are promos I need to be cutting (laughs) right now, you know, for radio stations. I have a lot going on, and I don't have room in my spirit, much less on my schedule, to hold on to any hurt and anguish. I am creating programming. I am pushing the industry in a way that I want folks here um, in the Twin Cities in Minnesota to be able to uh, consume and participate in um, in whatever way they can. My non-relationship with Minnesota Public Radio prevents that from happening. Folks in other parts of the country uh, are and can be more versed and familiar with my work than folks here in Minnesota can be. I'm not saying that I am asking anyone over at Minnesota Public Radio to bring me back in or to platform my uh, content or anything like that. What I am saying, the meaning and purpose of this is to say that I have officially healed and let go of all of those feelings of hurt and anguish because I'm moving forward and I know that there is a more positive road forward if I don't feed that so-called devil king in my comings and goings every day. I'll, I'll wrap up this, Scott, by just saying, once again, I am very appreciative to you for standing here by my side and continuing to do this podcast because there I'm sure there are many things that have not made it to me that you know created some difficult situations for you at Minnesota Public Radio American Public Media um so 
along with the uh, feeling of forgiveness and healing that I want to put out into the ecosystem, I also want to offer to you my sincerest appreciation for really remaining dedicated to this project and the cause that we're speaking to by getting on these mics every week. That means a lot, Garrett. Thank you. Thank you. Talk about getting choked up. Um, I want to talk about feeding a uh, devil king as well, because recently you posted something on, you know, I'm not on Facebook. What a hellscape. Yeah. I, I yeah, made a mistake. Speaking of devil kings. I made a mistake. <laughs> I went and I looked at the comments at what something that you posted about a collaboration that you did with Peabody. Is that oh, right? The Peabody Conservatory. Yeah. I went and I read some of the comments. And um, before I get into that, I want to say that I did not anticipate this podcast going the direction that it has either. When we first started this, I was going to be the producer. I was going to mm -hmm. be the guy making sure that you were staying away, you know, three inches away from the microphone. Which I don't <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and I was going to be the one, you know, doing all the, all the stuff behind the scenes. But um, I've had a tremendous amount of growth uh, on my own, and it has helped me to realize that um, you cannot discount anybody's experience. Mm -hmm. And when I went and I looked at some of those comments, there were people who you know, probably have no real serious connection with this music saying terrible things. Mm -hmm. It's out there, people. We are up against a devil king, a demon king. Shit However, ain't sweet. As we say, right on the street, shit is not sweet out here. It's so, a real racists out here in the arts, pushing actively against the work that we're doing. And the conversations that you hear Garrett and I have, I think of the phrase "steel sharpens steel." Mm -hmm. Okay, so sparks fly, but at the end of it, you're sharper and you're a little stronger, mm -hmm. right? And there are people out there who brought a gun to this knife fight, <laughs> and. That is what we're up against. So I would like to point people to go back and listen to Opus 128, where you and I had a very spark-filled conversation. And that's when Chuck Gomez was here with his camera doing his documentary. Mm -hmm. And we talked for another hour after that. And we and I don't know about you, but I was pitting out, sweating, and and my voice was going hoarse. But if we don't have these conversations... And nothing ahead is nothing is ahead for us but despair. And just, I believe that. And just to give people a quick refresher, the conversation that we were having was the music of Claude Debussy. He is one of the many people who has titled pieces of music with anti-black racist uh, tropes. Uh, and and so in his case, it was uh, the the gollywog dance or, or something. Mm -hmm. Gollywog cakewalk. Like. And what basically what I was saying is being just a little racist or platforming racism a little bit is a lot, especially to someone like me. So what we were circling was, is it is someone wrong, maybe even racist, for continuing to platform the music of Debussy, knowing what you know? If you don't know, you don't know. But if you know the history of him and his music and his relationship with women more than Black folks, you know, the way that he would dog them out, but in including Black people, how can you consider yourself one of the so-called good guys or on the, uh, the so-called right side of history if you're platforming that music? I'm not here to pass judgment. I just hope that folks will think about that idea you know have has have your thoughts or ideas evolved since that conversation we had back in 128 Some, somewhat but not a lot the thing is is that that opus really talks about you have to define some boundaries you have to you you have to find where 
you're not willing to go any further. You know, what, what is going to make you get a composer or a performer out of here? You know, th that, that is not an easy conversation to have. And there are people out there who, once you make that decision, they're going to attack you for that. And I am hopeful. I, I, I just want to put this out there, Garrett, in the most positive terms that I hope that as we, reintegrate ourselves with one another as we're back in concert spaces and having more of these sorts of conversations. I hope that people will extend some grace. I hope that people will listen a little bit more. And I hope to try to see a little part of themselves in the struggles of other people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Try to have a little grace. Thank you for those words. I think grace is a is a great place for us to uh, wrap up season three. So uh, for, for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to offer um, the extended cuts from a couple of uh, the conversations that I had with folks over uh, the course of uh, this, this past uh, season. So there will still be some uh, new content for, uh, for y'all to take in, even though we aren't here on the mic quite like this. And I've planned for us to come back on June 1st. We'll see. <laughs> no, I, I think there, so this is the thing. There are three extended cuts that I want people to hear. I'm either going to have to cut it down to two or we're going to have to take a three week break. I can't think that far right now because I just need a couple days to, <laughs> right. to get my, you know, because yep. so, the other thing that people have to understand is that trip for me, especially, triloquy is an everyday thing. You know, I'm reading and prepping and listening and scheduling interviews and writing interview questions. And do, you know, so there's something every day going on with me when it comes for, to this project. So I'm going to take a couple days at the very least to not think about anything. But as of right now, I'll, I'll say we'll uh, plan on being back on June 1st and there will be some uh, more content uh, for y'all to um, enjoy in the in the meantime some uh, new and fresh content um, I'll I'll leave everyone uh, with a Nina Simone quote. You know, Nina Simone is the first woman, the first person I heard say the phrase black classical music. So I'm going to wrap up uh, with a quote that's on my uh, Twitter uh, bio, also my Instagram bio. She said, I spent years pursuing excellence. That's what classical music is all about. Now it's dedicated to freedom. And that's far more important. Those words really reverberate with me. I'm out here fighting for freedom. And music happens to be the ecosystem that goddess put me in to, to do that work. So here I am. Peace and light, everyone. Thank you again for your continued support. We will see you hopefully on June 1st for the beginning of season four of Triloquy. Press save. <laughs>